0: Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the paths toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at NarrativesPodcast.com. Thanks. Well, Jeff, how's it going?
1: Hey, I'm good. How are you?
0: Good, good. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, Not at all. I'd like to jump right into it. Could you just give us kind of a brief bio and and some of the big ideas you're interested in?
1: Sure. So my bio is... uh... Pretty much, um, I did my PhD in uh, the late 2000s into the early 2010s, finishing in 2012. I was studying uh, comparative literature. Prior to that, I should say I was also in between college and grad school. I was living abroad, mostly in um, Latin America. So a lot of the work I did in grad school was kind of focused on Latin America, even though I don't write extensively about um, that particular topic anymore so much. Um, And yeah, basically, I did a PhD in comparative literature. I was um, working on a pretty wide range of of material and i i had struggled with specialization i was just interested in trying to cover as many periods as in, and kind of different literatures and languages as i could manage but um i primarily in the end focused my research on Late nineteenth and early twentieth century, predominantly European and Latin American uh, fiction, and also um, psychoanalytic theory and the history of psychiatry. So those are kind of the intersections of it. Um, and my focus at that time was um, heavily on like the history of the concept of paranoia and its representation in literature. So. That, I should say, was was kind of one of the things that um, kind of laid the groundwork for some other somewhat distinct work I would do later and more recently. But um, in any case, beyond that, I went to um, eventually went to NYU to teach in the undergraduate writing program. So I'm basically teaching sort of writing and humanities seminars to undergrads in various different schools of NYU, and I've been doing that. Um, seven eight years now and I <clears throat> um, because of the sort of particular path I took I had a lot of freedom in terms of the kinds of things I could write I wasn't on a sort of um, since I'm on essentially a teaching track rather than a research track um, that you know has certain disadvantages but it also has some freedom attached to it so I started writing I had published in academic peer-reviewed journals, but I started trying to write for a more general public. And um, I started writing particularly about um, technology and internet culture and things like that. And so that, that was, we're still in the sort of first half of the 2010s here. And basically from there, I kind of went, um, I, I mean, if one thing I started doing was taking these ideas about the history of the of paranoia and its representation in, in literature and culture um, to kind of think about contemporary like conspiracy cultures online and the sort of weird manifestations of, of paranoia in internet culture and also the different way that it was kind of being talked about. So that was sort of one of the threads that I started to pursue that kind of came out of my doctoral research, but then I kind of recalibrated it to focus on some strange internet subcultures and things like that so i was doing more kind of um you know just observing how these subcultures were functioning and trying to make sense of them using some of the tools i had and the other thing that happened was um <clears throat> one of the one of the theorists i was sort of interested in in grad school was Rene Girard. and so <clears throat> sometime because i was spending a lot of time kind of observing internet dynamics in this period um I, I kind of went back to his theories and started thinking about the way that they were, were useful for trying to to account for what was happening in these kind of new online spaces. And so that was kind of another thread that I picked up that sort of came out of that research that I had done and, and you know, reading I had done in grad school, but that I was kind of trying to apply to a totally different domain. Um, and so I started writing about uh, Girard and um, his kind of relationship to social media dynamics. And that was sort of, um, you know, that, that, that initiated a, a project that I'm sort of still working on. And I'm, you know, currently teaching a course about Girard. So, you know, that's something I've been thinking about ever since. This is going back to about 2015. And then I suppose kind of coming out of that, the other thing that I started noticing was just there was a lot of, um, you know, th- there were all these sort of theory wars and sort of earlier iterations of the culture war that involved these kind of, I mean, Girard was sort of an anti-postmodernist in a sense, but he was also, you know, he he had relationships with some of these figures like Derrida, and he he um, he actually was instrumental in bringing some of them when he was a professor at Johns Hopkins over to the U.S. in the late 60s. So, you know, he had a kind of complicated relationship to all these other kind of French, um, you know, social and cultural theorists. And so I started thinking about these other odd links to contemporary internet culture and dynamics that I was starting to see. And so I started kind of revisiting a lot of these sort of canonical texts of what's usually called postmodern theory and thinking about, you know, how how they might be helpful in understanding internet culture, but also how it might be helpful in, in looking back at them and making sense of what they were, trying to do and kind of gaining a new perspective. So pretty much those are, I, I'd say those are kind of the three projects more or less. Um, the 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 conspiracy theory, you know, co- uh, online cultures of paranoia projects, the sort of Girard um, online dynamics scapegoating project. And then the third is kind of revisiting this sort of canonical body of cultural theory. It's suddenly very contra- that was very controversial in the 80s and 90s and is sort of controversial again. So I I'm I'm I mean I I think the the perspective I'm offering on it is is pretty different from what most people who are talking about it today are offering at least in the in the sort of popular sphere. So those are pretty much the the three projects I've developed. Um, and again this is really this probably has to do with um being somewhat on the margins of academia like I I teach, but I don't, I don't really do, you know, um, academic research in the sense of peer reviewed research much anymore. Um, So I'm just trying to write for, you know, a range of more popular audiences rather than um, sort of specialized niches within academia, which goes back to my resistance to specialization in the first place. But anyway, so that's, that's probably enough said.
0: (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'm sitting here in Durham, North Carolina, and Gerard actually got one of his first academic positions at Duke, like mm. two miles from me right now, um, which I, th- I think about that a lot. And he wrote uh, one of his first books here as well. Um, w- what are some of the most important things about Gerard's theory that, you know, if, if someone like you're going to try and give an elevator pitch on like like what he, he kind of worked on and pioneered, you know, w- what would you tell somebody? Mm hmm so
1: i'll just i'll try to do it sort of narratively since this is narratives yeah um so he he begins by working very closely with literature from the primarily the 19th into the early 20th century um you know which was kind of the period that i was most interested in too in graduate school and he anyway he um he discovers what he what he sees as a kind of operative principle that is shared across a wide array of texts, which is that, that you can observe these authors um, kind of documenting the the way that their characters come to desire certain things, right? Which is that they come to desire certain things by um, by essentially copying or imitating the desires of others, right? And so he sort of took literature as a a source of revelation about a fundamental social dynamic, right? And particularly, he took a certain lineage of novelists who were capable of kind of seeing through the illusions that people create for themselves about why they want things and revealing that um, largely, by and large, the source of their desires is imitated. It's, It's based on copying others. And then all of these other phenomena that are... Um, associated a lot with 19th century particularly French literature like you know this concept of snobbery vanity um, that that this is all tied up with and so all these novelists were kind of sociologists right and they, they were they were observing contemporary society and the part of the important thing here is that they were observing that as societies became more egalitarian in other words as traditional hierarchies were sort of waning um and there was greater possibility of social mobility um that did create certain new crises because while it ostensibly allowed a kind of freedom it also meant that you know whereas to be schematic in a more traditional society you would sort of um you know if you wanted to decide or if you wouldn't really have to decide what you're going to do with your life because you probably just do the same thing your father did and your grandfather did and so on right And so you didn't have to, you just looked up at some preordained model, right? Which is probably your father or some elder person in your community, and you copied what they did. Whereas when we have more freedom, we can look around and we have more freedom to choose who our models are, right? So then the problem becomes, who do we we copy our desires from, right? Well, and then the problem is as anybody who's like been an ambitious person in a city or something like that, even today will know, well, when you're part of a group of people who are also who are all copying their desires from the same models, then you're going to come into conflict. Right.
0: Because everybody can't have the so, same thing.
1: Right. And so, so there's going to be um, an intense competitiveness. And so Gerard notes that this is, you know, a great theme of 19th century literature that that doesn't necessarily have to do with, you know, I mean, it, it often has less to do with the desire for basic material sustenance than to do with this idea that, you know, your, your whole sense of who you are comes from this sort of dynamic, right. That, um, you don't, you don't actually care so much about, um, and, and in fact, you'll give up material comfort just in order to, um, to be able to achieve what your model is achieving in some way. So, so this is this kind of, um, this, you know, modern, the special sort of modern urban worlds that these novels, documents, and that Girard sort of saw them gradually revealing to us, right? And that, that these dynamics, when he was writing this in the 60s, continued up to that time. So then, so from this, he drives the principle that conflict comes not from difference, but from similarity, right? Specifically, if we all want the same things, then we're going to come, come into conflict over those things. So, and then, you know, the big leap in his career is basically between his first book, um, which is the one I was just describing, Deceit, Desire, in the novel, and his second book, um, Violence and the Sacred, right? And so, Violence and the Sacred, he shifts his focus back um, millennia, right, to archaic societies as they're documented in, essentially in myth, but also in the biblical texts and and other surviving documents, as well as um, the contemporary accounts of anthropologists of of more um, traditional or archaic societies that, that subsisted into the modern era, and basically he he looks for the same pattern, right? Which is this this situation in which people come into conflict because they want the same things, because they're too similar, and he finds that. You know, this is also a, a kind of crisis that's described in the in myths, right? So the similarity here is that he's going to these texts and he's finding a particular pattern that they that they document and describe. Um, but here he comes to his next sort of major discovery, right? Which is that the way that this crisis appears to be solved is through um, scapegoating, right? In other words, through if you have a group of people who are all essentially in conflict and in this position of kind of oppressive sameness, right. Which, which he calls, um, you know, the sort of, uh, conflict between doubles, right. Then what, what eventually happens is that one person who slightly stands out within this group of people in in conflict is selected as a sort of victim and that they can all come together and sort of discharge the violence that they're,
0: um, kind of built up exercising
1: against each other against this this uh, surrogate victim right who's then killed or expelled from the community and this provides a kind of temporary pacification so this is the second you know the first con- idea is that you know human conflict comes out of sameness the second is that this kind of conflict can be resolved through a reestablishment of difference which takes the form of scapegoating, right? Of the entire group coming together around the scapegoating of, a, of an individual and achieving a kind of um, internal harmony by expelling this disparate element to the outside, right? Which creates a kind of boundary, which is the sort of beginning of a new order. Gotcha. So so that's um, that's really kind of the second major discovery, right? And then the third, the third one, um, which kind of comes in the next book, "Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World," is that um, there's a singular event. Gerard argues in human history, which is the um, essentially the crucifixion of of Jesus, right? And the significance of this event is that it is not that it. Um, it's not that it differs in any way from all of these other kind of sacrificial killings that have occurred over the course of history, but that it, um, that the way it is experienced and interpreted because of the, the teachings that come out of first Jewish scriptures and then Jesus's teachings themselves um, essentially enable for this, this mechanism. I mean, I'm, I'm missing, an, I, I sort of missed a, a step here which is that in order for this pacification function to work, the people must believe that the scapegoat is guilty of the um, sort of crimes that have... But the witch um, really did exactly. bring the
0: plague into the community or something like that. Exactly,
1: right. So right. So you can think of witch hunting, all the crazy things that witches are accused of, right? Bringing plague, destroying crops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that these, these things have to be genuinely believed. In other words, the guilt of the witch or scapegoat has to be accepted by the community in order for the pacification to work right and so the idea essentially is that gradually through there's a kind of slow undermining of this which begins in the jewish um in the hebrew bible right in the texts of jewish scriptures and then sort of culminates in the moment of the crucifixion which does not end scapegoating, but begins to weaken its efficacy by making it impossible to believe in the guilt of the scapegoat. Um, and so, those are, I'd say, kind of the three stages of the thought. And then he has a number of other books that kind of develop these ideas further. But to me, those are kind of the the crucial moments of his discovery. I realized that was longer than an elevator pitch. No, well, you know, it's
0: it's it's complex, right? I mean, if yeah. it's not exactly. Uh, Things that can be easily condensed. Um, I want to go back and and talk about imitation a little bit. And you know, you know, how important do you think impot- imitation is to human beings? You know, I, I always remember this this uh, study I read, and it was with um, pigeons and the Monty Hall problem. Problem, and pigeons are oftentimes they're better than a lot of humans at solving this like pure like rational optimization problem. And so and I often think like perhaps humans distinct advantage is our ability to copy what works, what other humans are doing. Um, and, and I see Gerard's work is like highlighting that and then reminding us that there can be some very dark things that come along with that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one thing that's, um, important to specify in in terms of Gerard's thought is that, you know, he comes there, there's a great deal of, um, work on imitation and its significance to sort of human behavior prior to him. Yeah. So what's, what, what he introduces is this idea of imitative or mimetic desire, right? That's where the desire comes from. That it's not, that it's not merely that we see a behavior and copy it, which we do obviously as do many other animals. Um, But we also see um, particularly someone acquiring or attempting to acquire something. And that, um, that triggers in us a desire for the same object. Right. So, you know, I think this, I, you know, part of his argument is that this is intrinsically a difficult thing to observe in one's own, um, life because one is in various ways under all sorts of pressure to conceal this from everyone else and from oneself. Right. You never want to be seen as someone who is, um, who's pursuing a path simply because somebody else has done it first um, and so you know there there are all these kind of strategies of denial or obfuscation right but i think you know the the idea here is that this is both a, a crucial element in shaping you know our our life path and also one that is for various reasons difficult for us to to observe or be willing to admit um, you know, at some point, Gerard says that you know modern you know, and he's thinking about Freud here, you know, modern people become so obsessed with fr- kind of detecting sex, sexual impulses and everything because they're still not willing to detect mimetic or imitative <laughs> impulses, right that that sex becomes a way of 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 i mean, it, it becomes a way of essentially. Um, covering up the imitative nature of desire by still asserting that it's fundamentally the 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 actual desirability of the object that makes it um, attract us rather than the rather than this mechanism of mere imitation right so i think yeah he and you know i I do think um i think there there are complications and you know reasonable critiques to be made about um you know particularly what's what becomes difficult to explain is how and this kind of goes back to the original you know example i brought up of like people in modern society who have who don't have a you know they they're not going to do exactly what their father did they're or their right. parents did they're going to potentially strike out and do something else so what is it that causes them to select one model for their desire rather than another like what what accounts for that selection process? How did, I mean, it seems clear that this happens, right? That right. people, people select models or what Gerard calls mediators. One thing that his theory maybe doesn't fully account for is how that selection process works. In other words, why does gotcha. one person become my model rather than another? So I think, you know, there's still that there's, there's, there are sort of um, areas of his thinking that I would say need to be filled in more perhaps, but, you know, overall, I, I think it's it's true that it is and remains a sort of neglected phenomenon, despite the fact that it's also so easy to observe. Um, but it's part of the problem is that it's very easy to observe. Like many things, it's very easy to observe in others, but harder to be willing to admit in ourselves.
0: Definitely, definitely, absolutely. And and do you feel uh, you mentioned this earlier? do you feel it has changed over time where, you know, and, and was, it is it like a post-industrial revolution thing where suddenly you have a lot more freedom, you're living in a democracy, you know, you've got, things are changing much more rapidly. It's not a, this society is much less static than it was in the past in feudalism where, you know, like you said, there, you really have no options. Do you think this problem has gotten worse over time because of that?
1: Um, you know, I think there are, there are a few different ways to respond to this. I mean, on one hand, so Girard would argue that, you know, traditional societies, pre-modern societies, in various ways, you know, expended a great deal of energy in regulating desire, right? And telling you what you could and couldn't desire, right? So, for gotcha. example, and here's a, you know, if you think of the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, several of them have to do with, you know, thou shalt not covet. Um, uh, you know, th- they have to do with telling you, you should not desire something that belongs to another person. Right. So that suggests, right. okay, this is a problem, right. That that society needed to figure out how to solve. Right. Right. And so similarly um, in, in many, um, just another simple example, think of the concept of the sumptuary code, right. That basically in many more traditional or earlier societies, there were actual rules about, depending on what your social station was, what you could wear and what you couldn't wear.
0: Uh, There
1: were were processes of who, there were um, rules to decide who you could marry and who you couldn't marry um, and things like that. that. So there were all sorts of ways that societies focused a huge amount of energy in restricting what people were allowed to have and thus kind of regulating their desires, right? And so one way to interpret this is that the potential for conflict was always there because the mimetic impulse was always there, right. But these societies developed these relatively robust systems of prohibitions to prevent that, that from happening that that were supposed to prevent that from happening. And so these but these seem bizarre and irrational to us in modern times, right? why right. Why are these things prohibited? Right. We think that's an affront to freedom and individuality and so on. Um, so, you know, I think part of the point with Girard is to kind of you have to recognize the the wisdom that's actually embodied in those sorts of um, regulatory systems, while at the same time not not being a sort of conservative nostalgist in the sense of thinking that it's something that you can actually go back to and like, get into why he doesn't think that's a, a feasible thing. But um Whereas in modern times, what happens? Well, um, you know, in a sense, there's this kind of free for all, right? Where suddenly people can supposedly pursue whatever they want. But of course, you know, part of Girard's argument is that there is no, the freedom is illusory, right? Because we become enslaved to whatever model we appoint for ourselves, right? And so, you know, so um, I think his account, you know, his readings of like, novelists like Proust and Dostoevsky are particularly good at um, illustrating this, right? You have these basically, you know, these sort of urbane, cosmopolitan people with more or less limited, limitless resources, you know, living this life of apparent freedom, and yet they're constantly in this state of of a sort of bizarre uh, mental and spiritual servitude to other people who they've sort of appointed as their... As the, the the people who kind of determine the path of their desires, right? But then, you know, the other thing that I think we could get into here is um, things like consumerism. I mean, obviously, what what happens later? Well, basically, we have these massive, you know. Um, um, sort of uh apparatuses of of propaganda of advertising that are sort of trying to direct our desires in particular directions right and are also um you know are are essentially operating from this principle right the basic idea that you you make a product desirable by showing somebody appealing who is consuming it or enjoying it Right. right and so you know, th- there's a way that this freedom is actually illusory because there are all sorts of new mechanisms that come in and in a in a less overt and more subtle way, kind of direct our our the course of our desires. Um, so the I think the point would be that the basic principle is there, but the way that modern society deals with it is somewhat different and, and more volatile. Gotcha. Um, but and and more. Um, more complex perhaps but um nevertheless is not you know it is by no means as free as it actually appears
0: that makes sense yeah i've got a question and this is a meta level question and i've wondered this for a while and um, it's slightly unrelated but it it is related the the pre-modern modern post-modern distinction does that describe something you know what does that describe and does that de- describe something real
1: mm. that's a really good question um so i'm i struggle with this um you know one of the books that most kind of transformed my perspective at a certain time in my life was uh, bruno latour's we have never been modern right which is probably the most influential book arguing that there that the that there's a basic problem with that distinction right gotcha but but the way that he does it is is a bit more complicated which is that he argues that um what what appears to distinguish modernity from pre-modernity is um something that he calls the modern constitution which we might think of as a kind of a, a, as a ver- a way of describing something like secularism gotcha and basically the idea of the modern constitution in latour's account is that you separate out nature and society Right, and you see um, nature as a separate entity that requires natural explanations, and so- society as a separate entity that requires social explanations. So pre-modern societies generally do not make this distinction. Right, this is why gotcha. they believe that earthquakes can be caused by, you know, a person's um, immoral behavior, or um, you know, tend to believe that certain. Um, that certain, uh, you know, things that we consider natural phenomena actually have deep roots in human activities or, um, or potentially or vice versa, right? That, that, that they don't really separate these things out. So gotcha. modern society enables the growth, particularly the growth of science, right? By taking nature and saying, um, you know, if there's, a, if there's an earthquake or a flood, this is not caused by some human activity, right? Instead, it's something that has some natural cause, right? And therefore we have to understand the s- systemic functioning of nature in order to explain it, right? Got it. So Latour says the problem, so this this all seems pretty straightforward. It seems that yeah. like the mo- the moderns were right, right? We were yeah. right to say nature is over here, society is over here, never the twain shall meet. So Latour actually says, no, this isn't true, right? Um, why isn't it true? Well, because um, mm-hmm. if you think about all of the major trends that we consider today as, as the crucial ones, they completely um, defy this divisibility. If you take something like global warming, if you even take something, I mean, and he was writing this in, I think, the 90s, but, you know, take something like COVID, right? Yeah. I mean, in a sense, even if even if the lab leak, I mean, if the lab leak hypothesis were true, then it would be a perfect illustration of right. this, right? That we can't really separate these two things anymore. Yeah. But even if it's not, you know, the the fact that that COVID spread in the way that it did was entirely the result of the way that we've um, organized human society, right? right. So, so the point is, um, his argument was that this division was always, um, was useful in the sense of enabling a kind of productivity on the part of science, but it was also... Um, illusory in some ways because it um, because it it doesn't allow for the kind of thinking that will actually help us engage with the problems we face today so one way of 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 doing this division in the Latorian way would be to say we have the pre-modern which is before the before we have the modern constitution the, the strict division between the social and the natural then we have the modern which is Is where we do have the strict division between the social and the natural and then finally we have the postmodern which is where these things start to blur again right and and it seems and people start talking about things like the anthropocene right now i want to say this is also you know there's a way of talking about this in a girardian way right because the um if you think about let's take the witchcraft example right so Gerard argues that um you know typically we imagine why did people stop burning witches um you know in about 3 350 years ago. Well, the typical answer is well they started learning how nature really worked and therefore they realized that you know crops weren't failing because of some hocus pocus they were failing because of some you know natural it's blight yeah. or something of that sort. So um So that's, you know, that would be the sort of modern constitution moment, right? But so Girard has a different explanation of this, which is that, um, and perhaps a different explanation of where this modern constitution comes from, which is that, and this, if you, you can, I mean, for me, another influential figure is the anthropologist E. Evans Pritchard, who Girard works, you know, who Girard is influenced by, who, know has this notion that witchcraft is an explanation of unfortunate events what does that mean well basically cultures which are basically all cultures and almost all you know basically throughout human history different cultures have had a concept of witchcraft right which is basically there's some person who is an agent of some misfortune and that misfortune takes the form of some kind of supernatural intervention in the course of events and that event and that intervention causes some disaster to befall the community, right? And so, all this is simply a way of saying different societies throughout history have had the kind of beliefs that um, that uh, are necessary to sustain the practice of scapegoating, right? That, in other words, they've had the kind of beliefs that enable them to say, "Oh, if there's some disaster befalling us, there must be somebody to blame. If we get rid of that person." we might not make the crop failure end right away, but at least we can relieve some of the social tensions around it, right? So Gerard says, basically, there's a kind of gradual disabling of the scapegoat mechanism. So people stop believing in the guilt of the witch for the crop failure or whatever. And so his argument is that in order to have the direct investigation into natural causes, right? Yeah. Um. You first have to have the disabling of the scapegoat mechanism so that people say, okay, I guess that kind of explanation doesn't really work anymore. So we need to look for other kinds of explanations, right? So um, in this case, you know, there's a, there's a way of reading the postmodern, which, you know, I would say is not, and I would say neither, the, neither of these ways of reading the postmodern are necessarily the ways that it's typically thought about, but, but they're except that um you know it has to do with the waning of of modern um convictions in scientific progress and things like that right that in this case along with the postmodern you would have a um a weakening of these functions that held back the scapegoat mechanism right which would potentially allow for it to proliferate in new ways which i would say it pretty much has so <laughs>
0: nice <laughs> yeah well but uh- yeah, I think, I think that distinction makes a lot of sense. And going back, so for Gerard, um, Christianity is, is special. Um, and, and it's special because Jesus is truly innocent. And, you know, maybe there's some stuff in the Old Testament that also, you know, is a precursor to this. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think it really is, uh, the Christian myth is, does stand uh, discreet from other earlier myths and, and myths? Um, beyond Christianity, so
1: I think he makes a persu- he makes a persuasive case in some places, um, and I think you know it it does allow you to see it essentially allows for a certain kind of exceptionalism that I think is is descriptive rather than evaluative. In other words, that that doesn't really set apart the you know the parts of the world influenced by right sort of judeo-christian scriptures as as morally superior but does set them apart as having initiated and gone through a kind of process right? right which is the sort of discrediting of scapegoating first right yeah and that that was historically causative and significant right and that what we're seeing today is the gradual kind of unfolding of that same process throughout the world, right. Through the creation of a kind of globalized monoculture. Right. Right. So, I mean, in that sense, I think there is a persuasive case. I, I would say that what a weakness of his, um, theory is that there is this whole notion of like the axial age and you have these remarkable parallel developments in different cultures, right. Where there's generally a, essentially a, I mean, and much of this involves a kind of movement away from sacrifice, right? Which is the sort of ritualized, um, the sort of ritualized substitute of the scapegoat mechanism and kind of more, um, you know, advanced sort of priestly societies, right? So I I think what's interesting to me is that there's clearly a kind of process of evolution that occurs um, in some cultures, particularly initially, completely separately from the trajectory of Christianity. And so I would be interested to know, um, or, or I would be interested to understand better. And again, I think this is a, a part of his theory that he, um, I mean, he does have a late short book that's, um, dealing with, um, some Hindu, um, texts called a book called sacrifice from, I think about 2010. So it was one of his last Writings, but overall, I think this is um, this is an area that deserves further exploration because w- the question is what what causes that kind of coevolution of various cultures, right? Um, because we can see that there was a coevolution. I mean, certainly in the earlier period, the Girardian account would allow us to see how there's a spontaneous and emergent process by which different societies develop these kind of priestly sacrificial cultures right right and so it seems to me there's also a co-evolution of various societies away from that right and particularly towards a kind of gradual moral repudiation of sacrifice and so I'd be curious to you know so so I to me that would be if not at odds with Gerard's kind of um understanding of the uniqueness of Christianity necessarily um, it, it would at least raise a question about um, if about whether we can really understand Christianity as the single kind of causal agent of this discrediting of sacrifice.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. That makes a lot of sense, and an area perhaps to to study farther. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's unfortunately it's one of these things
1: that's it's like so ambitious that nobody does right. the, nobody does this kind of stuff anymore. I mean, right. Um, so. I guess it, it falls to, you know, crazy outsiders and people like that who I'm interested in to yeah. to try to do it because people in academia aren't going to do that. Right. Because again, it goes back to the specialization thing. Right. You, know, you need, you need people who are just insanely ambitious and willing to go way out on a limb to try yeah. to think about these kinds of phenomena. Right. Right. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah. even, I think Gerard even talks about this on uh, it's like some, interview for canadian public television he did it's like four hours long i really enjoyed it listened to it mm. on a plane recently uh, but you know he talks about how everyone just you know the, all the academics were just unwilling to you know look outside their specific subdomain primarily because the incentives are just they're not tuned in the correct way for you to be able to do that like you know you, yeah. if to get tenure you need to publish in X journals in your field and you're not going to do that if you're doing these weird kind of very generalista um or like sub kind of domain areas of research or exploration
1: yeah and this goes back to my um sort of chafing against specialization when i was in graduate school so right (laughs) yeah yeah i mean this is part of what drew me to someone like gerard you know it's just i i appreciate somebody who has that kind of ambition um definitely and total defiance of any kind of expectations. I mean, I think there was there was a greater, you know, it's interesting to read about his career in like Cynthia Haven's biography of him because, you know, there was a greater leeway and freedom in American academia at that time to really go out on a limb and undertake really ambitious theoretical projects that I, I just don't think exists anymore.
0: So, yeah, I definitely think I, I haven't looked at it on the humanities side, but we, uh, have you ever heard of Don Braben?
1: Mm-mm.
0: He's a really Actually. interesting, really interesting guy. He's he's like 85 now, mm-hmm. uh, but he wrote a book called Scientific Freedom that was recently republished by Strike Press. But his whole thought is that it used to be until up. To you know until recently you could go and you could be a scientist or a scholar and you could get you know 30k a year and you could just make it and study whatever you really wanted to and now it's the opposite where you you have to apply for grants it's much more bureaucratic and that kind of weeds out a lot of like the weird wacky ideas like yeah you know working on max Planck, working on thermodynamics for 20 years would just not be feasible in the same sense as it was back then
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, another person who's written about this, who I was i was just thinking about, because I think um, it sort of ties into some things I was just talking about. Um, David Graeber's debt. Oh, interesting. Um, the first 5,000 years, you know, because it is kind of one of these, you know, it, it's about a 5,000 year span of history. So that's ambition. Yeah, that's but I mean, he also wrote about the same kind of thing, how, you know, just um, the, the way that academia is now governed by these kind of short-term incentives has has really killed the possibility of undertaking a lot of that sort of um, that sort of more ambitious and out there research. And um, you know he he sort of attributes the stagnation of intellectual life, you know kind of across the board to that to that situation. Um, so yeah, I think that's a a, a serious uh, serious issue today. I mean I think my only, slight ho- glimmer of hope is that you know there are i think there are just a lot of people doing weird and interesting stuff on the internet so yeah <laughs> that's kind of um you know and and also i think the i I, th- I do think the prestige signaling function of academia is somewhat in decline at least as far as sort of high caliber intellectual i think there are other sort of um you know that there are other forms of signaling that are vaguely coming into being um you know it'll still take a while but i think i think we are kind of groping towards new models for for this sort of thing so
0: things are definitely changing they're definitely changing yeah um i wanted to throw out a few overrated underrated terms and just get your feedback on them be down with sure, that? sure 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 mm-hmm. okay so uh overrated or underrated baudrillard <laughs>
1: I would say he, I think he was, he went from being overrated to being underrated. Um, And he's, I would say he's definitely underrated today. Um, So, you know, he's somebody I've been quite interested in recently. I think a lot of stuff that he, um, a, a lot of his arguments were sort of misunderstood. I mean, part of why he was overrated was that there was a kind of oversimplified version of him that, that circulated in sort of popular culture. Um, and that, you know, I think what what was actually useful and insightful about him was somewhat lost in that reception. And so, you know, what's interesting to me is the way that his um, his thinking was, you know, when he was thinking about simula- simulation and simulacra, right? Right. Um, I think a lot of people associated that with VR and, you know, th- yeah, and things like that. like that. Um, and hence, it becomes you know cited in the matrix and so on. But I think what um, what people missed was that you know the real way that he was thinking about simulation was through model you know things like modeling, right? That um, that have been extremely significant in the past year and a half and during COVID, for example, right? That in a way the, the in a way the whole way that we apprehended the reality of COVID was through modeling through simulations in the sense of. Um, of sort of mathematical models, right? Right. Which um, which were essentially substituted in for the reality of the of the virus, right? And then became the basis of policy making, right? So, I mean, to me, that's a much more useful um, illustration of, of what he was thinking about, right? Definitely. And because the problem is that, the, and the, and the, the problem is that this kind of modeling becomes very I mean and the reason it essentially it it does away with the sort of and and the reason the matrix or whatever model isn't is or or um, illustration of Baudrillard isn't quite right is that it still assumes a reality and then a representation. Right. But the whole point of this kind of modeling is that it constantly blurs those two things, right? It 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 doesn't it doesn't allow for that those two things to remain distinct. They collapse or sort of implode into each other. And so yeah I would say that he Um, you know, especially since the particular way that simulation functions, you know, in a very immediate everyday way in all of our lives, um, the way that we're plugged into all these algorithmic systems and so on, you know, that's the part of him that I think is underrated and that, that I think he was quite, um, quite prescient about, you know, in, uh, as early as the mid seventies. So definitely Makes
0: sense. Critical theory, overrated, Mm -hmm. underrated?
1: I mean, I think <laughs> I I would say let's put it this way, I think it's um causal impact on society is overrated by <laughs> conservative critics. Um in the sense that it it doesn't um I mean it and you know, it goes back to the whole witchcraft thing. It, it's essentially it's it's come to function as a kind of scapegoat that can yeah, be that can be blamed as a, again, as a causal agent of misfortune. You know, right. you take all the things you, you diagnose as wrong with the society and then you um, decide that this relatively small group of people were ultimately responsible for it. Right. So it becomes a kind of rhetorical scapegoating. And yeah, the, the, I mean, I have my own way of trying to describe what, um, what it's sort of causal if any role is in you know sort of how things have evolved in academia and beyond but um i won't go into that now i'll just say that one of my general takes here is that it's overrated as a causal agent of the misfortunes afflicting western society or whatever
0: (laughs) that makes a lot of sense and uh yeah, I I think that it makes quite a lot of sense that it's definitely become this uh, major scapegoat. It's just like, you know, you hear Ben Shapiro, like this is the cause of the mm. decline of Western civilization and this is the end. And it's like, uh, I, I'm not quite sure that would, that would be it, but it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, let's see. So, I, you know, how has it been in some ways you know, I, have seen like, like, like a lot of your work seems to be creating a parallel academia, you know, how has that experience been? And is that a fair, like a f- assessment of, of what you've been working on?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say it's probably a bit less ambitious than that, but, um, you know, in theory that would kind of be the ideal, um, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's been it's been great in the sense that there's so much more interest in a lot of these ideas out there than I would have anticipated. So, right. and also that you know, it's it's nice to talk to people who are not kind of plugged into this system of careerism and and competition, and who are really right. just trying to make sense of the world um, in an open ended way, and don't Definitely. really have any you know, don't really have anything to gain from it. I mean, I, you know, and personally I don't actually have much, I mean, I, I have sort of minor things to gain from it, but you right. know, at this point, my career, as far as my day job is concerned, is kind of largely detached from whatever right enterprises I've, I've been building online. So, um, you know, so it, it, it feels very, um, genuinely truth seeking and, uh, you know like uh, refreshing in that way because i really don't think much of that is going on in academia unfortunately right so
0: which is yeah. uh not good perhaps just depressing yeah. yes uh well jeff thank you so much for coming on uh do you have any parting thoughts just about gerard anything the things we discussed today and the second question where can people find your work
1: sure um thoughts about gerard uh I think i've covered most of it i mean i i think his um you know i i i i i think what i brought up before um it, when you asked the modern the pre-modern post pre-modern modern post-modern question right you know perhaps that's kind of my you know a sort of watch the space point would be you know trying to just f- kind of figure out that relationship between gerard and post-modernism slash post-modernity is sort of one of my main interests at the moment and particularly that issue i brought up of that i think it does it does imply a kind of reactivation of the scapegoat function in in new ways um if if we're returning to this kind of blurring of nature and society right right that that what that means is that you have a kind of um, possibility for you know Um, social agents to be blamed for natural disasters and all that, that kind of stuff. Right. And so what that means is that the scapegoating, you know, function is, is going to be react and is being reactivated. Right. So that's, that's part of what I want to keep thinking about going ahead. And uh, you know, if other people have thoughts about this, I'd be curious to hear them. Um, So, so that's, that's one of the big, one of the big projects I want to pursue. So you can look out for my, writing at outsider theory, uh, outsider as well as the podcast of the same name. Um, you can find the links to that on the website too. Um, if you go to my Twitter bio, my Twitter is at daily underscore barbarian. Um, the, if you go to my Twitter bio, you can find a link tree with links to various other things. Um, but those are probably the, and yeah, you know, you can, you can follow me there. I've been trying to lay off the Twitter a little bit nice. lately, but, um, <laughs> take, a, take a little summer break from it. Um, try to be outside more, et cetera. That's good. but, That's um, good. but yeah, you know, but you can definitely still follow me there. I'm still putting in appearances and, um, yeah, check out the link tree and it's got some other stray links to other stuff I've been up to.
0: So. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it
1: yeah thanks so much it's been a pleasure and uh yeah hope you uh enjoy the rest of your summer and uh yeah just thanks for the invitation
0: definitely well that's our show for today i'm will jarvis and i'm will's dad join us next week for more narratives